Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer, building community through storytelling and sharing the LGBT experience. My guest today is my good friend, Rob Smith, a former retail fashion executive who shifted direction two years ago uh, to open the Fluid Project, which started off as the only gender-neutral clothing store and LGBT community meeting place in the world in Manhattan's NoHo district. Now it's become a magnet for gender non-conforming people globally. Rob, thanks for joining us on Bandway and Me today. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. By way of background, Rob and I have known each other for about 10 years. We each served as founding board members of a nonprofit called Athlete Ally, which serves as a nonprofit whose mission is to make sports more welcoming and inclusive of LGBT athletes and to mobilize athletes of all stripes and hues to stand up for gay rights globally in and out of sports. But Rob has done so much more. First, Rob, why don't you explain to us what the Fluid Project is and you hope it will become? Sure. The Fluid Project is, I like to start with the name. The name itself, Fluid, is the ability to move easily between two spaces. And the idea that these spaces are these binary constructs that we've created, whether it's male, female, gay, straight, black, white, you know, Muslim, Christian, you name it, we have constructs. But this idea that we could move freely and that we're so much better than just being limited to one box or one category. So that's fluid. And the pH in fluid represents balance and the idea of the balance within each of us. And it's kind of, you know, find that balance, you find harmony. And project because we're working together to make something better. So starts off with the name. Our mission is to challenge boundaries with humanity. So we challenge everything. We question why are things the way they are. We look at the way that society is and knowing that we're in a constant state of unlearning and relearning always through our entire life, that our goal is to make space for people who we haven't made space for in the past. So when you get to the the idea fluid, that's the idea. How we execute it comes through the core audience who who we serve. And we serve our focused audience is the gender nonconforming transgender community who, you know, fluid is part retail, part community space when it comes to retail don't really have places to shop because everything's so binary. Men's section, women's section, everywhere, online, in stores. So we create this gender-free shopping space that allows people to play and express, whether it's through identity or through just their gender expression. Why is a skirt a skirt for women? Why can't just a skirt be a skirt? And so it starts off there. But then it transcends into a company that's grounded in values and purpose. And then the bigger audience, because purpose and mission and humanity resonate with many, many people that allies become our largest audience. Not young queer folk, but really people who just believe that we all should have the right to exist. So fluid is really a space for everyone. And I call it free to be, free to be you, free to do what you want to do. And it's spelled P-H-L-U-I-D. Yeah, P-H-P-H is the balance. And correct. what is the web address for those people interested in checking it yeah, out? Yeah, so if you want to check us out, it's at www.thefluidphluidproject.com. Or you can just type in, we've gotten to the point where you just type in fluid, P-H-L-U-I-D, and everything shows up, which is That's kind great. of exciting. So, you know, what prompted you to make the change from a traditional path in retail fashion management and into the course you're on now? I mean, it's a pretty market change. It, it is. It's, you know, I think that what my experience was could have been experience of many people our age who there's a time when you wonder what impact you're having in life. You know, I think 
parents sometimes get that because their impact is their children and this is what they bring into the world and then leave the world. And I've always wondered what mine was and, and always felt like I could offer something more than I did. I had this idea like, would there be an obituary in the New York Times written about me? And could I do something so special and so memorable? Could it be worthy of an obituary? And I don't think, I think that's kind of, I don't think that way anymore, but um, that's kind of what I was, I would think sometimes. And then we'll just interrupt you for a second. It's interesting because I've had a similar epiphany Uh in building Bammer. And what it comes down to is, you know, those people who have kids, they know what their legacy is. Yes. Right? Yes. For those of us who don't have kids and aren't likely to, what has our time here on earth been about? Yes. Right? What is our relevance? What, what mark have we made? And when you, if, if for Bammer and, and me, it's about storytelling and yes. seeing a light go on in other people's eyes when they relate to it and they can give you their story back and building community through storytelling. Well, you're, you're doing the same thing. It's storytelling. Like, you know, what I decided to do in my life and how we, we can talk about how we got there, but how I've left corporate America behind, very lucrative career, taken my personal wealth and put it into this project because I do believe that creating a space a safe space for people is incredibly important to give visibility to people who we don't recognize and see is incredibly important. And then to educate people around this group to say, Hey, listen, I'd like to teach you what I've learned and tell you about this community and make space for them everywhere. And so, you know, that is what my mission is right now. It will continue to pivot and change. But I feel the amplification of this happening around the world and Fluid Project is at the forefront of it, helping not creating the movement, but joining the movement at the very beginning. Well, I see your name and the store's name popping up everywhere. So there's no question that that you've kind of captured the zeitgeist of the moment. Absolutely. I mean, I know from our personal interaction, but I'd like you to kind of share with us, with the audience, the, the kind of... I don't, I don't know, the transition you went through, the in personal one sure. uh, that brought you here from where you were in, in retail management? It's, it's, a, it's funny. It's a, it's, there's certain moments that happen on this journey, and I'll say my, my first epiphany was my first Burning Man that I went to. Burning Man is a, I want to call it a festival. It's a, it's a, it's a gathering. A gathering of like-minded people who want to celebrate art and music and humanity where you exchange no money, but only gifts are exchanged. In the desert. In, in the desert. In Nevada, Nevada. In August. And it's a celebration of life. And my first one, I kind of knew I was going to, but I didn't really know. And then around the middle of it, it really just settled in with like, wow, this is how we should be as humanity. This is how we should be as people taking care of each other, loving each other. And then I realized like quickly that the social construct we've created with 75,000 people, how quickly people adapt. There were people who you don't talk about being heterosexual or homosexual there. You're just a sexual being. Right. You know, you're not, you know, your gender expression shifts very quickly. Like, you know, heteronormative men or even very straight acting gay men by day three are digging through looking for tights and asking people to paint their nails because you start. And to I should say yours are right now kind of a slate gray, cobalt blue. I'm not sure. Well, they're actually, I meant to do like a pink and blue. It's for the Trans Day Remembrance, which right. was last week. And this is one of my ways to help honor our brothers and sisters that we've lost uh, so early and so unnecessarily. 
So at Burning Man, I had this epiphany, and then and, and then there's a crash afterwards, right? People crash afterwards. You come back, and it's hard to like reality. get back into reality, and then you start to look at reality and go, "This is so fucked up." Like everything we're doing is just this big machine, and you realize you're in the machine, and you're part of the machine, and and I just and how how are you contributing? How am I? Well, just like what is the, what am I contributing? Yeah, exactly. Other than making money for a company and and keep continuing to like you know, put shit out there for people to wear and, and it's like, what does it mean? Like, what is it? What are we here for? We have a second on this planet to make a difference. And I just came up with Burning Man. People make this, have this statement. They say, don't quit your job after your first Burning Man. But I couldn't help it. I just went in <laughs> and I quit my job. And I gave them six months. And, and I had no idea what I was going to do. I just knew I had to do something. And the, the only thing I knew to do was to put in a backpack and start traveling. So I've done it. This is my third time. Uh, but I did it very intentionally and purposely. I, I, I uh, traveled and I wanted to learn about ancient traditions, cultures, religions, uh, ceremonies, that type of thing. So I started my journey in Central America and I studied uh, indigenous folks there and spent time with them. I went into South America. That's where I uh, was in Peru and the Amazon. I did three solid weeks of ayahuasca, which is a shamanic practice. And I, in that moment many things were revealed and one of them was the fluid project and the fluid project um, was given to me i wrote down on april 14 2017 in my journal consider opening a gender-free non-binary shopping environment and i wrote fluid in quotation marks and i decided that's what i was going to do with my life so it was gifted to me so yeah so then i ended up um finishing my travels i went through india nepal tibet and i studied hinduism buddhism Sikhism, and islam I intended to only study Buddhism, but I couldn't help ignore these other religions, which are so prominent when you're in the, in the uh, Middle East. And uh, that was very awakening. I learned a lot. And then when I came back, I thought, gosh, you know, I really want to wrap up. I've been learning all these other cultures and traditions. And I took, decided to take my mom to the Ojibwe Reservation, which is where her grandma was born, and honor my own history. Is she actually Native American ethnic? She is a... If she's a quarter, I'm a twelfth, I guess. Oh, right. I mean, yeah, she's twenty-five percent, so I'm half of her, so I'm twelve percent, right? Right. Which is based where? Uh, upper Wisconsin. Okay. It's part of the Chippewa right. tribe. So, and that's where I learned about two spirit. Uh, two spirit right. is the third gender. Right. And it's if you were born in an indigenous culture, in most indigenous tribes, you were born with equal amounts of male and female. You might be considered transgender, red A. There are a lot of words for that. But they were often the most revered and became shaman. And they were special because they were very special. They yeah, were born different. Born different. So I learned about that, and that was kind of tying into fluid. And I created my LLC now called Two Spirit LLC, and I just honoring my history. It was a lot of fun. Pre-colonialization, it existed everywhere. We came the, you know, the center of an of a of a culture and a community, and then became the outcast once uh, colonialization happened in religion. Before I kind of take the audience into fluid and its manifestations, let's go back a little bit. Just yes. start with your upbringing in Michigan. You went to Michigan State. You know, what was it like growing up there for you? What was your childhood like? And was there any indication early on that you might end up finding yourself in the world of fashion and clothing? Um, wonderful question. So I grew up in Detroit. I uh, moved to the suburbs with my family. I've got three wonderful siblings. A great mom and dad are still alive, super supportive. We were kind of celebrities in our town because our dad was a Pittsburgh Steeler, and uh, he was a big guy. And my, everyone knew my dad. My dad coached little league football and baseball for my brothers. I had no interest in sports. 
I was your typical little gay boy. Did that create any problems for your parents? I think they just didn't know what to do with me. I remember once playing dolls with my sister. We play Barbies, and I looked up, and my dad was standing in the door well, just looking at me. It wasn't an angry look. It was just, what have I got here? Curious, yes. He was curious. I mean, they loved me unconditionally. Right. My, my family loved me. I was not a popular kid. I was very isolated. I, I was bullied, and I just decided to isolate myself in junior high to protect myself. What's interesting is I decided when I was going to go to high school, I wasn't going to be this person anymore. I would manifest this new person. You reinvented yourself. I reinvented myself. So when I walked into high school, I decided to start playing football, join school politics, decided to like hang out with cheerleaders. And Did you will yourself from being an introvert to, into being an extrovert? I willed myself, yeah. yes. But I left this kid behind. It's interesting. What's it like rediscovering that little kid as an adult? I, I tried. I tried in therapy to reconnect with him over and over again, and he would ignore me. He literally would, like, just pretend I didn't exist. It wasn't until my time in Peru that I, in between ceremonies of three weeks, there was a silence weekend, and I was sitting naked in a river, or naked, and I went to a river to meditate in the rock. And I just thought, what the hell am I doing with myself here? And, and I just started to cry. And, and, and I don't think I've cried. I can't tell you the last time I cried like that, if ever. And just sobbing, and I curled up into a ball. And I was a 10-year-old boy. And I said, I'm so sorry. And he said, I forgive you. And I became a whole person. Pretty surreal. And I stood up and I said, I'm going to make you proud. And what's so interesting about that is right after that is when the Fluid Project came to me in the next ceremony. So Fluid is an ode and an honor to my younger self to reconnect with him and do it would make him proud. It's wonderful how you managed to bring yourself, the two parts of you together. Yep. So in the middle of all that, being different, when and how did you begin to deal with the issue of your own sexual orientation? It was really hard to suppress in college. I mean, in that age, we're just wildly, like, Sexual, sexual. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it was really hard. I mean, I... No pun intended. Most, exactly. The most I had was I, I did have... Um, had a brief affair in high school with, with a young guy. It was very secretive, and it wasn't until people, I think, started to notice that, that we just separated our friendship. In college, I had mad crushes, mad, mad crushes, but it didn't act on anything. That I remember. Maybe I blacked out and did. I don't know, but, but I certainly would fasten, you know, I was fascinated with like public showers and you know like where the fraternity guys would all like shower together and it was just so fun they would go crazy and then it wasn't until I moved to Miami Beach and I and it was, was a great place I, I moved to go to come out to in South Beach I thought you kind of knew you were kind of knew I was going to go there and unfortunately a bunch of my college friends also moved down there too which kind of put a but then but then I decided it was a time and and I was in Miami Beach in the early 90s. Right, when it was beginning to be hot. It was beginning to be hot. And then I, I remember saying, saying to a friend, like, I really like it at this bar. We were, we were at this, like, gay bar. And she's like, yeah, it's awesome. And I said, no, I really like it at this bar. <laughs> she goes, got it. So then I started the process. Within a year, I'd come out to my family, my friends, the work, and then I And was, no public resistance or... Um, not even... Uh, not even one. And then when I came out, forget about it. Like, I went from, like, bow ties and plaid pants to, you know, red jeans, makeup, pierced ears, Versace vest. I was, I was out. I was you out. Embraced, you embraced me. I did. I did. Uh, somebody said I didn't 
come out of the closet, it came running straight me out of that closet. I felt great. I felt wonderful. So how did you drift into or race into retail fashion management? It found me. You know, I was going to go work for Procter & Gamble. That was my ultimate goal in Michigan and go work for P&G. And I don't know, I got an accidental interview from this company called Burdines down in Florida. And they said, hey, Rob, we're, uh, we had a cancellation tomorrow. We heard you might be interested. Would you like an interview? And I, I called back and I said, sure, of course. So I got on my bike, which is what we did in March in Michigan. And there was about three inches of snow on the ground. Rode my bike to the library, pulled out a book, looked to see what Burdine was. It was a department store in Florida. I went to the interview. They had, you know, had really no experience other than wait staff at a department store. And they really liked me. They said, would you like to come to a second interview in Florida? Well, who in Michigan would not take a second interview in Florida? In winter? In winter. <laughs> it was like, absolutely. And I had a blast, and they offered me a job, and I, I said, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. And so that's what got you to Miami. That's what got me to Miami and into retail. Right. And then it was... Well, you had a meteoric rise. I mean, for the audience, because I know you won't say it, you were an EVP at Macy's, and then uh, EVP at Victoria's Secret. And then yeah, you... I think I started off as a VP at Macy's. I think when I was 25 or 26, I became a vice president. I was, I was really good at what I did. It's kind of fun when you end up falling into a career that you're actually really good at and you had no idea you would have ever done it. And, I, and I, was, I was amazing at it. I was buyer of the month for like two years straight running. I, had, I just was good at it. What skill set did it take? I don't know. I mean, I think it's gut. I like how it gut. Like I can pick things. Yeah. I also um, like to test everything. I never predicted anything. I let the customer tell me. So I would like bring in 24 pieces of a style and walk to the floor on a Saturday. I count them. And I put the reorder in by Sunday. Like I could just like, I just let systematic the approach, systematic approach. Yeah. Test rear, test rear, just, right. you know, and also a little bit of gut. Then I, you know, went out to the West coast. I became a vice president for Macy's there. And then I came to Macy's East executive vice president. I think I was also very young. I was a 35 year old executive vice president. So pretty young around these 50, 60 right. year old straight guys. You know, that was a whole experience getting accustomed to that. And then, I moved to Victoria's Secret. I wanted to learn about the digital space, direct-to-consumer. So I did work in the, I ran all of non-intimate apparel, which was basically, if you remember the catalogs, so the catalogs, the Victoria's Secret catalog, I would manage that plus all the product creation. Wow. And then I went on to this company who's a licensee. who I created uh, Levi's and Nike kids apparel and accessories uh, for the world. I was the chief product officer. And that was my last. And that was the, the last five years before you decided to. Go off and figure out what came next. Correct. So now we're up to when you started Fluid. It's been open two years, subject of a blizzard of publicity and visibility. Other than your, that came out of your Ayahuasca experience. Nice spelling it. <laughs> did, you, did you know the world was ready for that? I did. did you have a sense that, that there was a, yeah. I guess I, I knew, I remember, this is very a very vulnerable phrase, but I remember being around Athlete Ally, which we were on together, and I remember Hudson, who was very articulate in the space. Who's, Hudson Taylor is the founding executive director who, as an All-American wrestler in college, really you know, was pissed off that the locker room talk was homophobic and sexist, yeah. and stood up as the captain of the team and, and uh, would-be national champion, and said, I don't want to hear any more of that language. And out of that, through this organization, right? Correct. Yeah. So what about and I remember Hudson talking about non-binary folks, non-binary, right. and, and, and I started kind of understanding what it was and using it, but I never stopped to actually think what non-binary was. Right. <laughs> I just would say it, and 
And they got to the point where I was embarrassed to ask anybody. Right? <laughs> like, what does this mean? But it, I had an awareness, I think, in working with Hedrick Martin, which right. is the LGBTQ after-school program in New York City, serves thousands and thousands of young people in the tri-state area and around the world now educating people. I'd, I'd known about it, and I wasn't keenly aware of it. It wasn't something that was high on my radar. You know, I was not totally attuned to it. Right. So when this came to me, I thought like, wow, okay, even writing non-binary, like, okay, I, I don't even really understand this. Yeah. I understand it's something, but it's not like I went to a, a focus group, did research to see what was happening. I just created it, and then I started to do the research. Well, how did you learn? Do interacting with people? Well, well, that's you know what I started to learn was uh, I first hired a coach, and I learned all the language. I figured if I was going to speak for a community, I'd better understand it, and it was eye-opening. It was a language I had no idea existed. Right. I'm now in teaching these classes, but boy, I was I was like, hey, listen. Can we come back tomorrow? Because I really would process all this. It was very confusing for me. I think, and now I'm able to break it down for people. And I'm willing to break it down for you in the audience if you'd like. To yeah, that. but but before we do, I, yeah. uh, let me ask you, you know, it depends on who's listening to this. Sure. But let's assume there's a population of people that are not familiar, yep. that are not either themselves non-binary, gender non-conforming, or don't have a lot of friends and aren't close to that world. How do you coach people like that? to learn to be open and to become fluent in this language. Sure. I just remind everyone that we're in unlearning and relearning. And I think I remind people that the year I was born was 1965, and that was the year of the Civil Rights Act, where women and, and people of color are offered now through law equal opportunity for employment and housing. And then I also, it was the, Civil, it was the Voting Rights Act, that blacks could finally vote in the South. And that, that it was still a time when you could get arrested for being queer, you know, for being a gay man or a gay woman or transgender uh, person. So, you know, you, this is a time when in 50 years, what has happened? And you think about it, we've got a way to go. I'm not saying we're there. But boy, has a lot happened. And think about the next 50 years. So whatever it is, what are we as society need to learn right now to make space for the people that make space for us? And so that's what are I... Are those that are still left out? Those are still left out. And, and we're, we've left a lot of people behind. You know, I think between gender expansive people, I think people with disabilities, I think we're, we're not talking about mental health. You know, there's a lot of things that we can do better, um, and diseases we can cure and, and just spaces. I just think that we just need to understand as a society not to be complacent right. because we're here because other people weren't complacent. Right. Our own community and then allies. Right. So when I think about the interesting thing about the queer community, and it's interesting, not everyone's comfortable with the word queer. I am around young people all the time, and they've... they've they prefer it. For someone like me, for whom it was a, a word of stigma, Yes. I, look, I use it occasionally, but it's really it hard to embrace. It is hard, I, and I understand that. I just, I understand most people prefer LGBT. QIA plus. Well, that's, I think I, <laughs> it goes up to the T and stops. You know, and then there's the, uh, the Q... And then when you when you really want to be you know correct you add on the I and the A and the plus, and I think I mean listen for me it's powerful to reclaim queer it's also a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> you, don't triple, you don't trip over the letters you're like with the LGBT. Well, plus they're going to keep plus. adding letters or keeping harder. It's not going to end. I mean we're going to add more letters. I assure you, in three years there'll be three more letters, and that's just because we're creating more space for people to exist. I think the other thing we're doing, which which is what I love, is we're taking these letters and we put it under the queer umbrella. Let's say. But now starting to break down, what do these letters mean? I think when, when you were our young, we just called ourselves gay. Oh, they're gay. 
Everybody was gay, including lesbians who didn't exactly, like Exactly, yes. Everybody was gay, right? And then the lesbians broke away, and then, and then we made space for transgender, and then we made space for bisexual, and then we we're making space. But what's really interesting now, for me, the way I break it down, there's different components of each one of us. And it's complex, and they were all clumped together in the pocket. So first of all, there's your sex. The sex is your biological, you know, way you're born, whether you're born male or female or intersex, but you're born male or, in large part, 99% of us born male or female. Your identity, your gender identity, it's not your sex. Your right. gender is your identity. It's how you identify. So you identify as a male, born as a male, so you're a cisgender male, right? right? You're uh, binary, right? You're in that one side of male, born male, identify as male. Then there's, so there's gender identity where that comes into form is now these gender non-conforming, gender expansive young people who identify as non-binary. So they're, they, they're born male or female, but they identify with both genders. So they're non-binary. And then there is uh, gender expression, which is the way you express yourself. So that's your appearance. Nothing, your appearance. So that has nothing to do with who you sleep with. That has nothing to do with what your identity is. It's just your expression. And we need to make space for that because that's another one. And then there's sexual orientation, which is who you want to have an intimate relationship with. So now you kind of break these all out and say, wow. A lot the commutations are pretty limitless, aren't they? Exactly. And there's space for everybody to do this. You could be a white, straight man with a feminine expression. You know, it, it's, it doesn't mean you're gay. It doesn't mean you want to, like, have sex with another gay, another man. Also, So when I, when I would go to the... Drag ball, it was called a Ballet de Travesti in Rio de Janeiro during Carnival in 1983. And it was a bunch of cross dressing businessmen who I assumed would all be gay, and none of them were. It was a bunch of straight men that liked to dress as women. So that would be according to your categorization. Yeah. I think, and I think now we're just creating space for people to just be, and also breaking it out instead of just clumping people into, I think the whole idea of when people would just call us gay or call us gay as a kid, like as a seven-year-old, you're talking about who you're going to have an intimate relationship with. I think it's a little effed up to be calling somebody gay because, you know, right. why is that? You think they don't even have hormones flowing. Exactly. And yet we're throwing a sexual orientation on a young child just right. because they like to play with a doll. Why not just like give the kid space? Figure out who they want to be, what they want to do. A doll does not make them well, gay. Well, particularly since I grew up with a three-year younger straight brother, as straight as they come. And the two of us were given dolls by our parents and played with them equally. You did? He turned out straight, I turned out gay. So lucky. He did <laughs> dolls. I gave my sister to like, uh, pick, pick them out for Christmas. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So I think it's just interesting, this, this space now we're creating. I, I find that in some cases, there's some resistance to embracing this concept. It's the complexity. It's the complexity. And it's like, hey, listen, gosh, guys, you know, we fought for our rights and representation. We fought discrimination. We fought an AIDS epidemic. We fought resistance from the government. We have fought so much in our lifetime. What are you doing? Like, just take the G and the L and the B and be happy with it. You got gay marriage. And these young generation, they're like, we don't care. Like, I think something... Recently, I read 52% of Gen Z's identify as not strictly heterosexual. That, that, that 81% are not defined by their gender. And I saw something saying 40% identify, identify as non-binary or unwilling to put down a gender. Correct. 
And so now this young generation doesn't care about the G and the L. They just say, like, they don't care. They're pansexual, not bisexual, which means they include, you know, other folks, including trans folks and other folks who don't fit into the binary, because bi is binary, and that they make space more with pansexual. And they're a lot more, they're queer, they're multiracial, they're they're just, and they're not, they don't want... Accepting of difference. Yes, and they don't want labels. I actually find that encouraging, because as someone who believes in the concept of a real LGBTQ plus community, but looks at my generation and realizes that most gay men hung out with gay men and most lesbians hung out with lesbians, the idea that, in fact, we are intermixing is, is wonderful. But the other point from my generational viewpoint, and you may agree prior to having gotten involved, it's the complexity of trying to remember when to say they or she or what, you know, it's more the learning process. Yeah, and I think we just got to get over ourselves. I use pronouns he, him, they, them. Right. You can use they, them for me, and I'll use it in a sentence. Right. Where's Rob? Well, they ran to the cafeteria. One, what are they going to do there? Well, they're grabbing a salad, and when they get back, tell them that I'd love to meet them because we have a meeting at 3.30. That was not that hard, was it? Right. <laughs> I mean, literally, like, I go into a space where if you use they, them, you can use it all the time. So it's just safer to use the plural instead of having to figure out which pronoun to use for which person? For me, it's easier. Yeah. For me, it's easier just to not to misgender someone. Right. So tell me how you're turning Fluid Project Concept store and the online business into community. So the reason I opened a store, first of all, was because I wanted to get to know who the consumer was, continue to build a relationship with the community. So we had, in the first year and a half since we've been open, we've had well over 200 events. And they're, they're with community events. So they're embracing all aspects of our community. And, and Including anything. launching you know, Capturing Rainbows now, Bammer, yes. our, our opening party. Was Absolutely. Right. And that's part of what Fluid is, is it's two-thirds. The, the store itself is two-thirds uh, retail. The back one-third is community space. It's where we have events and host panels and fundraisers and lots of different things. On an average week, how many events would you have? Four events yeah. in an average week, yeah. In the month of June, we have 30 events in 30 days. For pride, yeah. Pride is pretty exciting. But that's who Fluid is, is a community. And the community congregates and meets in the store, but the, the community exists worldwide. So of the followers we have, 40% are international. So we have people who are avid fans, and we haven't paid for one follower. Everything has been through press or word of mouth. I will never pay for a follower. I'll never pay an influencer to post our product because it's all about authenticity. And I want people to identify with the brand and not feel like they're being sold into the brand. So where do you take this concept of community going forward? So the idea is that community exists as it is in the store right now, but it's really this meant to create content that lives online. My dream is that someone would pull up, go to Fluid, and they could spend an hour on the website, not in a transactional way, but in a way of seeing conversations and stories. So that's my, my dream is that someone could just hang out there no matter where they are. Um, I want to get out and get out to different communities. My goal is to start doing more pop-ups this year, um, activation spots, touring. Around so temporary retail outlets? Temporary retail outlets, correct, and showing up in Austin or showing up in Atlanta and engaging with the community and basically doing the same format that we do in, in New York, which is show up with Fluid Product, show up with local designers and local artists, support the local charities, and have an activation event within that space and just come in and get to know the community, have them get to know us and start to build more solid relationships and have that spread. So 
that exists in the U.S., and then I'll hopefully start to do it internationally as well. I know, as a confession, I'm a very small investor in your store. You, you, you took $250 and up investments yes. through a crowdsourcing yes. agency. Are you still doing that, and what are the plans to grow it? You know, the timeline ran out. I'm, I have, of the money put into the business, 98% of it's mine. Yeah. So I have, in large part, I have got, you know, a fundraising, which is really helpful. Sure. Um, but it's expensive. On the edges. It's on the edges, yeah, yeah. I, I, now it's up to me to raise $2 million right. to continue to take this momentum and move it forward. But if anybody wanted, listening, wanted to invest, well, how would they look up the application? You know, I would just go to email uh, info at thefluidproject.com and introduce themselves okay. and say, just I said themselves. Uh, that's the yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, you do this. <laughs> Very smooth. <laughs> Introduce themselves. I'll try to copy you. <laughs> it becomes very easy, just like anything else. I after practice becomes. Like so, better. final question. Um, oh, but can I just say, say the, one other thing I'm really excited about is you know creating safe spaces yeah. in store online. I have a plan to actually create a safe space online where people can have conversations without bullies, right. which I think is extremely important. So moderated uh, kind of conversations. Set of rules yeah. with guidelines and then creating a space for people. Will you be having them share their stories as well there? I, I think this is a more, I mean, it's open, but it's right. monitored, yeah. But it's, well, it's it will it'll, it'll create sub-communities right. where people can have conversations. You know, maybe you're F to M, female to male transitioning. Right. Like you've got a community to sure. talk to. So I'm really excited about that. I'm also excited, I just launched this last week, it's called Get Fluid, and it's called Gender Expansive Training, and it's for corporations. Oh, wonderful. So it's now what I've done is said, hey, listen, I have created this community, or I don't say I should have created, I've joined a community, and I have the privilege to represent a community, and we started what was a job portal, which is getting young folks ready for the workforce, right. which was a great initiative, and it's a great initiative. Right. The problem is I know where to send them. Right. Companies are not ready for them that if you go to a company, you know, you might fill the job application, doesn't have a third gender as an option. That they, you might get misgendered by the HR person who's interviewing you. You might show up at work and have a dress code that doesn't suit your dress code. And you may just end up leaving because after six months, you're misgendered after every single meeting. And there's no home for you there. And there's no home for you there, and you leave. And so what my, my work is, is to help companies who are interested get ready for this gender expansive community. And will, then, will you have one or two people who are full-time openly doing that? I have, I have a full-time okay. person doing it, and then I have a team of gender expansive, both transgender, gender non-conforming young folks who are going to come in and tell their stories and choose themselves. Do you charge the corporations for that? Of course. That's checking. Part of, part of how <laughs> I'm going to pay for this sustainability of business. Yes. Right. I didn't dig myself out of a hole, but it's also deeply purpose. The, the work is very purposeful right. and needed, and so for me as an educator now, which when I was a student two years ago, I became right. an educator now. I'm educating people to, who have positive intent, who are deeply interested in making space for people but don't know how. And in, there's, so there's three groups of people. There's the people who are resistant and refuse to even do anything. There's a middle group of people who are just like, wow, I don't want to touch this. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed. I'm not going to say anything. Right which I think is pretty problematic. And then there's the other third, which is, hey, listen, teach me everything you know. I want to learn. I want to be a better ally or better supporter. And that's when I'm focusing on plus I'm also pulling in the middle third, too, because when you start to understand and have some basic knowledge, you go, oh, that's not as bad as I thought it was. I can do that. Yeah.
they have the, the first third are probably not going to talk to you very much. You know, they're probably anybody who's that closed off. Well, what you do is if you succeed in getting the first two, the first two, yeah. it, they come along. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, how long have you been a quote unquote activist? I mean, I've been doing board work with LGBT nonprofits for 23 years. You know, Glisten, Athlete Ally, Newfest, Stonewall Museum. You've done a lot. And yeah, thank, you, and thank you. No, my pleasure. But you, I know you were the chairman of the, of the board of Hetrick Martin Institute, and I want you to talk for a moment about that organization uh, for what a half dozen years, maybe. Uh, as well as the development director, co- committee director at Athlete Ally. Are those the two organizations you spent most of your time with, and how long have you been doing most that? Most of my adult time. Yeah, most since I moved to New York. Just, I always, this is, this is a, I always wrote down, I was in San Francisco, I always wrote down like my to do list, and every, I had volunteer on there. And I would like scratch off all my lists, and I started a new page, put volunteer at the top, and I could never for years find an organization that I really believed in. And then when I moved to New York, I was, I was going to do this. I was going to sit on the board. I was going to do some good work. And sure enough, like three different people pointed their direction to Hedrick Martin. And I was on the board within six months when I moved to New York and then served on, you mentioned served on the board, chaired the board, uh, helped with the expansion outside of just New York City and led 10 successful Emory Awards. Gala. Uh, gala. gala which is our gala, yeah. And that was deeply meaningful work, you know, working with the LGBTQ plus community and getting to know them and realizing how difficult and challenging it is to, we think New York is such a great city. It's not a great city for everyone. You know, if you're a young queer person of color, it's not a safe space. It's not a great place. And not everyone has supportive. So parents. what does Hedrick Martin do about that? Basically serves um, programs, uh, after school programs, the home of the Harvey Milk High School, the only LGBTQ plus high school in the world. Um, basically just serves 2000 young people with program safety, um, education, health awareness, you know, all of the things right. that you'd want in an organization. Right. And then we wanted to work with Athlete Ally, which was deeply meaningful, um, especially around the time of Sochi. Yeah. Is, Rob went off to Sochi Olympics in Russia with our founder, and that must have been a hell of an experience. Hell of an experience. Probably one of the best experiences of my life. I would put it in the top ten. Yeah. You know, we went there with no knowledge, really just this campaign. Right. Which is principle six. Right. Which was that we we realized that we were going to a country where where if you had any type of gay propaganda, you could get thrown in jail. Or even positive mention of homosexuality. Correct. So here we were going into Sochi, where the world eyes were on this this city and the Olympics. And we had this campaign called Principle Six. We pulled it straight from the Olympic Code, which says sports does not discriminate based on the grounds of race, religion, politics, gender, or otherwise. And we underscored otherwise. Right. And we made hats and beanies and scarves, remember, and signs. And right. we, we would literally, like, covertly go in and just people would hear about us. And, and it was fun. Like, Hudson was doing interviews, and we were, we were running around, and, and the universe was just setting us up for success. And then we ended up in the... Olympic House, and a friend of mine had been working with Ralph Lauren, who was one of the hosts. And we went in, and we, as we were there, so was the president of the Olympics, the ambassador to Russia, and all of the delegates that Obama had sent. And we, Hudson and I, got a meeting with them, and they were super impressed. As a result, months later, they added LGBTQ to the principle, and months after that, they voted to say a country could not host the Olympics if they didn't live up to the principles. Which ended up causing the government of Kazakhstan to overturn their anti-gay laws. Absolutely. So 
what was a really dangerous, kind of scary, exciting time because we never knew if we turned right instead of left if we would disappear or not. Right. We had, you know, this fear of of being, you know, uh, exploited or caught and 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 what that would happen. And but the rewards were, I mean, profound. I think and impactful. And it was one of the most exciting things I've ever done in my life. Well. Here you are in early middle age. You've got 30, 40, whatever years ahead of you. What do you see is the horizon going forward? I, I'd like to see right now my platform of Fluid continue to expand and continue to become a global brand. I want to be a brand as long as Fluid is alive, and I think it will be alive and thriving for years to come, that it's a brand that people trust a brand that shows up in places that not a typical brand would. You know, it's not just about a retail space. It's not just about selling clothes. It's about creating a brand that stands for something and showing up all over the place with our seal of approval, with our creating safe spaces, creating conversations, and putting humans and humanity first. And I think that this brand is limitless in what the potential is, and, and I'd like to be the steward of this take this as far as I can go. Well, with your intelligence and your authenticity, and given the way the world's headed, I have no doubt you're going to succeed. So thank you for the time today. It's been great seeing you. Uh, I'd love to be able to do business with each other. (laughs) And thank you for the work you're doing. You really are. You're giving. We're doing similar work. You know, it's in different manifests in different ways. But I appreciate the work that you Well, I'm done. going to talk to you about getting some of your people to put stories uh, if they if they want an outlet. My community. Yeah, your, yeah. your community. Yeah. Sorry. Your yeah. people. Your people <laughs> to talk to my people. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Ron. Thanks a lot. Okay. This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, and Caleb Holland. For more stories, go to bammer.co.